Hey, it's the FinTech Newscast. My name is John, and with me, as always, is Steve, who is an expert on global events. Oh, that's definitely what I go for, John. Absolutely. Complete expert. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, we were just talking a bit ago about uh, supply chain issues at every level, it seems like. The Shanghai lockdown has kind of you know, contributed its bits along with uh, ports being packed and uh, demand being uh, really mismatched with supply. Just uh, a mess at every level, yeah? Yep, yep. It's it's having effects on on inflation. It's it's having effects on 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 key industries like in manufacturing with semiconductors with lithium batteries. Just um, it's it's amazing to to understand now after two years of this how how supply chains can really affect all that we do. I just saw something where um, once Shanghai opens up, all the outflow coming out out there will cause a problem with the ports being even more impacted. So whether they stop producing, that's a problem. When they do stop, start producing and exporting out again, that creates a different problem. Uh, it just never ends. It, it it never ends. No, and it's interesting um, because if you if you think of of how how supply chains have effects on everything from the economy to politics, right? It's just it's a it's a really all encompassing world. And I think that finance also is a is as you can imagine a key component of that. Uh, you know, in twenty twenty, I thought, hey. If I could just fast forward a year when this is all over, that would be great. Now this is the third year in a row I'm I'm saying that, <laughs> but uh, but you're right. Uh, uh, finance is key part of things that are getting messed up in terms of a company's plans. But fortunately, we have an expert in this area. We have Nathan Feather, the CFO at Prime Revenue, who specializes in supply chain finance. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks. Thanks, John and Steve. It's great to be here. And thanks for having me. No, no. Very timely to have uh, uh, someone working in this area. Is there a specific uh, industry that you focus on or uh, a size of company? Where exactly is your market niche here? Yeah, so our, our market is primarily uh, corporates in North America and in Western Europe. And we range from mid-market to enterprise. And I know mid-market is a bit of a a tricky uh, topic, depending on who you're talking to. But for us, that's probably, you know, 200 million in revenue, um, all the way up to the largest companies in the world. And then in terms of industry, you know, based on the the moniker supply chain finance, you could think it's, it's folks where supply chain is important. So, you know, manufacturing, uh, retail, consumer packaged goods, those types of businesses, not too much in, you know, services or financial services or, or those sorts of industries. So I, I guess a good place to start would be, Nathan, can you explain what supply chain finance is and how that affects the way in which we buy stuff? Sure. Uh, so supply chain finance really is, we, we've been doing this since 2003. Uh, so we're a bit of, of a gray hair for a fintech, I guess you could say, but really it came to be to to eliminate some of the friction that takes place in B2B payments um, and really to you know, disconnect when a buyer wants to pay or pays for the goods from when a supplier can receive payment. So the first step in supply chain finance is providing visibility and transparency to all the parties involved. And for us, that's buyers, suppliers, and a funder, typically a financial institution. And we take um, a lot of the guesswork out of receivables finance and how it's historically 
um, historically been, been done. So if you think about receivables finance, there's a lot of factors at play. There's the risk that the buyer can't or doesn't pay. Um, mm-hmm. There's risks on late payment, dilution, uh, the supplier's own financial condition. And what supply chain finance does is eliminates all of that through technology and really limits the transaction to buyer default risk. So what that does is it allows the cost to come down dramatically in receivables finance, and it gives suppliers the opportunity to take advantage of the credit rating of their large corporates and take control over their own financial uh, their own financial payment terms. Got it. Okay, so from a, from a to to have sort of a concrete example here. Say that I'm selling a bottle of olive oil to in uh, to to John, right? So I'm shipping it from Alameda to, to San Francisco. Um, the way that I, that I would do this is that essentially I would send it over, and then once once he receives it, he will then mail me a check or something, right? And that's sort of a, a very simplistic transaction. How does a platform like yours enable? something much more complex and much more valuable than a bottle of oil when you have things in terms of, you know, shipping things across the ocean, maybe monitoring goods as they move along the supply chain as well. Can you sort of explain how how my very simplistic model differs from what actually takes place in the real world? In that real world, there's a lot of things that are taking place before you ship that bottle of olive oil. But where we come into play is um, we will integrate to John's ERP system, whatever that is, if it's SAP, Oracle, something homegrown, doesn't matter. And as soon as he receives and approves that invoice, it's visible on our platform. And so Steve, you can then log into that platform and see like, okay, John got my shipment of olive oil. He's approved all the invoices. Uh, There's no credits or offsets, nothing got damaged in transit. And he's going to pay me on September 20th for that shipment. So the first thing is you get visibility into that. It's no longer a black box. You're not calling John to find out what the status is. And then secondly, you have the opportunity to get paid either on the date that John intends to pay or any time between now and then. And if you elect to get paid between now and then, um, our system will record that. We will uh, allow a funder to purchase that invoice and we will instruct them to make payment to you tomorrow. And then at the end of the term, when John was originally going to pay, we will instruct John that that invoice is no longer owned by Steve. It's really owned by bank ABC. So instead of sending the money to Steve, Here's the payment instruction to fund it to the bank, and that will close out the transaction. So John will still pay when he negotiated um, the payment term with you, but you have the opportunity to get paid anytime from the time the invoice is approved until its original maturity date. Steve, so you, I, you, I don't intend to pay. <laughs> I, I was going to say, um, so we have seen that how um, uh, this kind of problem can be addressed by, by things like smart contracts using the blockchain. Is that something that you guys have looked at as well? And, and if not, how do you see what you offer now as a different proposition from what a blockchain w- would enable? Yeah, so I think the blockchain uh, can come into play alongside with what we're doing, right? And the blockchain can help to manage the, the flow of goods, the ownership of the goods and potential, 
potentially even the ownership of the financial asset. Um, but ultimately, the the money needs to move from one party to the next. So if if it were a smart contract that was the asset, it would act just like an invoice from our perspective and could be transferred from one party to the next, um, managed in a closed loop environment. And you know the cash flow could be facilitated in the same way as, as we're doing it today. But I think definitely there's a place for blockchain in the future as it becomes you know, much more widely adopted um, for, for these types of transactions. Got it. But it's, but it, that's, that, that's not something that you're actively looking to deploy right now is, is to, to look at, um, yeah. Yeah, no, it's not something that we're actively looking to deploy right now. And it's frank, it's not been something that our customers have, have asked us to deploy yet anyways. Yeah, I have to say that um, it, it, it strikes me that, you know, the, the sort of a uh, uh, hard nose um, supply chain finance stuff, it's, it's something that's not, uh, I would assume as receptive as you know to um, high flying tech concepts as as you might imagine if you look at it from a fintech fintech perspective, right? No, for sure, it it certainly flies a little bit under the radar and and solves you know some some sort of core business problems that maybe aren't as sexy as as some of the ones that that get that get a lot more of the oxygen, um, but it definitely addresses you know real real business problems for corporates every day. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So we've we've talked about um, in the past about the effects of things like the Evergrande and sort of how uh, supply chain the disruptions have affected all aspects of, of business. Um, what what did you see as, as one of the, the largest changes during COVID that you think could be addressed next year as things sort of open up? And I know that earlier we talked about the port of Shanghai potentially being, uh, you know, sort of flooding the market with, with goods co- com- coming out of China. But how do you see the whole, um, the, 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 the whole space sort of shifting as we, as we get out of the, the, the COVID area? Yeah, it seems like there's been one thing after another for the past, past two plus years um, from, you know, the, the onset of COVID to the Evergrande to where we are today. Um, you know, what, it, what we've seen, I think, is a lot of resiliency by, by companies and, and by corporates who have become, I think, pretty good at dealing with supply chain disruptions as they come up in the short term. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as we talk to our customers and they start thinking more mid to long term, I think there's, you know, definitely a, a, a revisiting of supply chain a revisiting of, you know, inventory levels, everything for years has been built to drive any fat out of, uh, out of the manufacturing process, right. And, and to get to, you know, just in time, which is great when things work as they're supposed to, but when they don't, then it creates, you know, either bottlenecks in one place or, um, too much inventory in, in another. And so, oh, oh, sorry, so, um, so have you seen uh, companies sort of build out redundancies to get away from the just-in-time model or is that still the, the prevalent model in, in, in the industry? No, I th- we've seen our customers start to build out, I don't know if you call them redundancies necessarily yet, but um, maybe slack in that model mm-hmm. um, where they may have had, you know, just enough inventory to run that day's production line. They're definitely expanding that amount of inventory 
to be able to weather some of these, um, you know, some of these disruptions that seem to be popping up every so often. So I think that's one thing that's already happened and continues to happen. The other thing that I think is maybe a longer term, um, a longer term outcome of this is a shift from reliance on maybe one supplier to provide this certain commodity or this good to multiple suppliers who can um, share that, that burden of producing the inputs into my manufacturing process with probably some of that coming, if not you know, necessarily onshore, um, more nearshore than, than maybe where we had been two and a half years ago. Interesting. Yeah, I, I've I've noticed in the, in the news that there, there's been this. There seems to be some a movement now to basically move supply chains from uh, China and the Far East to something nearer, like Mexico, for for example. Right? Is that something that, that you have seen as well with your customers, or is are we still very much tied to to China right now? I think we're still very much. I think right now that's mostly discussion and maybe er, and and planning as opposed right. to actual true implementation, but it definitely seems like we're headed that way. And I, I don't necessarily believe it will be, you know, an elimination of the supply chain that's in Southeast Asia or in China, but I think it'll be much more of a, you know, a web potentially um, than just a, a pure like chain from one place to the other. But now we'll be able to source that commodity from China, from Mexico, from Eastern Europe, more diversification. Um, can, yeah. More diversification, exactly. It works in finance and it works in supply chains or your suppliers as well, huh? Right. It does. It does. What we'll see is like that, that, that all costs, that all takes investment and costs and costs real hard capital to get that set up, though. So I think it's, you know, we'll, we'll see how that plays out over the next year or, or two. Did you see any companies or, or industry sectors? that were especially having having trouble? I mean, I guess you would see more of the credit issues or the, the cash flow issues uh, in the past two years. If I think back to the early stages in, in March, 2020, a couple of interesting things happened. Um, one is sort of from March 15th to March 31st, we saw a record amount of early, early payment requests, suppliers, sort of taking every invoice they had open, converting it to cash immediately, and you know, sort of building a stockpile of, of cash, I think, to prepare for what was expected to be you know, some length of disruption. And then from mid-April to mid-June, transaction volume, purchasing volume, sort of went in the tank across the board. Um, but after that, it started to bounce back. Some, some industries were hit harder than others. I'd say automotive, manufacturing were sort of still down pretty substantially, while other industries like grocery and certain segments of retail were well above you know, where they were in the year ago period. And then you know, from our perspective, by end of June into the third quarter, everything sort of seemed to level out in general, not necessarily where it was pre-COVID, but maybe 10% off So and, and, and steady. Um, and then what we've seen sort of post that point in time is 
what I call more isolated disruptions, right? So even today, we have certain of our customers who are significantly impacted by a chip shortage. And without the chips, there's, you know, they can only build so much inventory in the rest of the, of the products that go into the finished product. So their volumes will go down temporarily when they get the chip shipments in, then they spike again. So they're just sort of an ongoing, like almost a whack-a-mole that's taking place throughout the supply chain as, as these little blips come up here and there. Yeah, it seems like it just keeps changing all the time. And um, everyone's forecast seems to be wrong continuously for the past <laughs> uh, two years, at least. Um, so uh, how are you guys now in terms of your business? And, and what do you, I mean, everything's so tight. You mentioned trying to build Slack, but uh, it, it takes years to, to change your supply chain. There, there isn't a capacity to, to build in a lot of Slack in, in terms of even getting uh, what you need. Uh, how has that affected your business? Have people come to you? Has that built up your, your business? Has that changed a lot in the past two years? And, and what do you see going forward? It's definitely helped our business in, in the aggregate, I would say. There's been some ups and downs throughout the time period. But anytime that there is a macro event that requires additional uses of working capital or additional um, access to working capital, that's generally good for our business. And so we've seen a couple, we've seen that on a couple of fronts. I'd say one is our buyer customers are looking to generate working capital um, to fund some of this inventory buildup, to fund some of this um, you know, reimagining of the supply chain on the one hand. And on the other hand, their suppliers, um, you know, if they need to increase production, they need the capital to do that. And so they're looking for ways to, to, generate, um, to generate liquidity to be able to do that. And taking early payment on their receivables is definitely a very low cost and, and simple way to do, to do that. I'd say the other thing that's happening right now, and I'm sure um, this is no surprise to anybody, but the combination of inflation and, and rising interest rates is sort of another stress on supply chains um, and on, on companies of all size. And so that is certainly starting to have an impact on, on our customers as well. I think I'm stopping just uh, wishing to forward, fast forward a year. And I, I just wish I could just jump ahead to three years from now because uh, these things <laughs> just, just to extend out longer and longer. Uh, so on, on your operations, do you see any threats from competitors? Well, especially fintechs, they've been getting so much funding in so many different areas. Do you see any technologies on the rise where you think, well, maybe we, we need to adopt that or, or think about that going forward? Um, there's there's a lot of parts to that. I would say the answer is yes. Um, so <laughs> there's we have today we have two types of competitors given the space we're in. One is other fintechs. Um, there are a number of other players in the market, and the other competitor for us, frankly, is banks, um, large global global banks who have a big presence in trade finance and who, you know, like the asset class. Um, have longstanding relationships with corporates and see this as a way to deploy capital. So we, we both partner and compete 
with banks for this business. In, in terms of the, the broader spectrum, you know, there are a lot of a lot of companies that are really focused in on different financial products for SMBs uh, and consumers, and whether that's um, buy now, pay later type of things or other types of lending products. And we don't really play in that space uh, today, nor do we necessarily have a you know, short-term vision to be in that space. But one thing that you mentioned that we are getting into that brings us into a different type of competitive environment is payments and, and really you know, true business-to-business payments without necessarily financing them. And so in there, we, get in, we start to get into um, sort of a broader range of competitors who have, you know, different business models or different types of relationships. I think the one thing from our perspective is no one, the true business to business payments that touch on the direct material supply chain has not really undergone a lot of the, let's call it innovation around payments that some of the indirect materials have uh, and some of the smaller businesses have. So there's definitely um, some moats to that, I think, but there are a lot of competitors who, who really want to be into that space and who view that as sort of the next frontier for them um, to grow their payments business from small and midsize into the enterprise space. Yeah, it seems like they, they keep expanding into more and more spaces. And uh, w- one thing that's kind of scary for you know, an established company is, especially the VC-funded ones, they're, they're willing to take losses for extended periods of time. Whereas if you've been around, you, 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 you're like a, a for-profit company, I take it. Uh, and <laughs> yes. um, you know, if Apple commercial comes out or uh, Amazon, oh, well, Amazon's a good example because they, they finance their... Uh, the companies in their store that uh, often supply from outside of the country, if they're willing to take losses and make it up somewhere else or just to gain market share, uh, that, that becomes a problem for established players. Uh, certainly, if some, some deep-pocketed corporates, like you mentioned, decide that they really want to be in this space, it would certainly provide some challenges. And, and I think some opportunities, because we are in a very tight relationship with our corporates where we're seeing, you know, every invoice back and forth between uh, the buyer and the supplier. And we're bringing in a a group of over a hundred banks with the access and ability to fund that, whether it's, you know, simple domestic U.S. dollar transactions, or it's some more exotic um, type of cross-border or domestic Swedish transactions or what have you. And so I think being an independent there um, gives us, gives us an advantage where, you know, companies who view themselves as either today competitors of, or potentially competitors of some of those players may not want to, you know, open the kimono to say, here's all the suppliers that I buy from, and here's the, you know, amount of volume I do with them. Um, you know, just giving that information over maybe, maybe somewhat of a challenge for for some folks like that to get into. But you know, if, if they put their mind to it, um, they've shown their ability to Amazon in particular be successful and and a whole a whole host of industries. 
Uh, yeah, so much of uh, the advantage with the Amazon and, and the Googles is that they have so much access to data and what you're doing. And we talk about that at the personal level, but, but certainly at the, the commercial level, uh, that would apply as well. What would be the next uh, things that come up that, uh, that help prime revenue? Um, uh, you're in a battle uh, for, for market share. Uh, is it uh, access to more capital or uh, getting the right people to build out better, faster, cheaper solutions in, in uh, technology or otherwise? How does prime revenue uh, uh, grow in the next two or three years? What's a good scenario? Yeah, there's, there's a couple things, I think, that sort of are core to what we're, what we're doing today. Um, the first is, you know, just continuing with expanding our current set of customers and growing. We've started in the past few years, expanding from, you know, the global 2000, the enterprise safe customers into the mid market and the mid market is really untapped in the space. Um, and there's, there's a ton of opportunity there. So continuing to grow. Into uh, the underserved by the large banks. 100% underserved by the large banks. Our experience has shown us that when you get sort of into private businesses, maybe they look like, you know, double B minus type of credit, the large bank is not as keen to go into that space for something like this as they are into the, you know, the they large only, enterprise. They only give money credit. to people who don't need it. <laughs> Uh, indeed. I won't say anything too bad about, about banks because they're definitely our partners as well. But that's, that's certainly one area and one avenue of, of continued growth for us is going into that segment. And there are banks who, who love that segment, um, but they're just not the large global banks who typically would invest in their own technology or, or want to do that sort of thing. They're, maybe they're regional banks um, that you know, that really like that profile and that's their core profile. Um, the other thing is continuing to expand with, with payments, with business to business payments um, and talking to customers. We found that it's, it's a problem for them. It's, it's, a, it's a big um, pain point for them in sort of finding a uniform, consistent way to pay their suppliers and also really sharing information and providing access to suppliers to take some of the burden off of their own resources, right? So they're not calling up to find out what's the status of my invoice? When are you going to pay it? I invoiced you for $100. You paid me $98. Why? Um, and we think the, the like on-time payments with Steve. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Um, so we think the on-time payments there is, is another great, another great avenue for growth. For us over the coming years. Sounds like a blockchain problem. <laughs> yeah, uh, we've talked to a few people. Some combination of technology sometimes can be the uh, the, the right solution, uh, not necessarily yeah. including blockchain. I, I would echo that. I think, I think blockchain definitely has a role to play in eliminating a lot of the bottlenecks that exist in, in business processes today. I'm not but I think it has a role to play. If you guys want to raise money, just, just call you guys a, a Web3 supply chain finance company soon to be on the blockchain. And watch the money roll in. And exactly. then the money's going to roll in. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like just saying you're primerevenue.com 20 years ago. 
Yeah, exactly. This uh, this podcast is on the blockchain, by the way. It's a Web3 podcast. There you go. <laughs> okay, we just doubled our listeners. That's how we do it. That's how we do it. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that you have on your platform is, is what you mentioned before, which is basically your, the global funding network. And I'm wondering, as, as a non-bank, could I possibly get involved in investing in some of these working capital solutions and so I, I can get a little some some uh, um, on top of that? Or is that open to, as you say, mostly regional banks and other FS players? Sort of what, what's the, the, the structure of the program there? Yeah, so the majority are large global or regional banks, but of our of our network, maybe 10% is made up of sort of non, non-bank entities who are looking to, you know, make some returns and like the trade finance space for its mix of, of yield um, versus risk. And, you know, they typically are charging slightly higher rates than, than a traditional bank, as you might expect, but their appetite for the types of credits they're willing to fund is also a lot broader than a traditional bank. Um, so certainly if you have a, a fund and would like to put some money to work, like we, we can take that offline and, and discuss what, what profile of corporates you're looking for. So you've been back. a private company for uh, a little while now. Any, any thoughts where that would change sometime in the future? Or is there is there a company you'd want to partner with or acquire? Let's say you're the bigger bigger guy in any of these scenarios. Um, yes, we have been a private company, and I think that's the way we will remain for the for the foreseeable future. Anyhow, um, yeah. So we're always looking at ways to expand sort of what we do to the next adjacent thing in you know, in finance or in working capital solutions. So we're not necessarily going to go out and try to build some sort of demand generation tool for, for our customers, but moving to the next step and whether that's, you know, a virtual cards or P cards or um, things like inventory finance or the like, we're always looking at opportunities. We have some partners in some of those spaces. There are a lot of providers there that could be potential targets for us to, to fold in as we, as we continue to grow and expand. So what, what is the next best thing that could help in, in this industry? Is it just the, uh, or is it just more like a economics thing uh, with people are shipping more and things get back to normal? Does that help you uh, grow out and help the industry or are, and are things kind of optimized as they are now, or, or what would just make this whole area simpler for, for all the players involved? Uh, well, just general general economic growth, I think, sort of lifts lifts all the boats from from our perspective. But the one, if I could probably pick one thing that would make life easier, more efficient um, for for us, for our customers, um, for the banks, would be some sort of some more level of standardization. Uh, as you might imagine, when you work with a lot of banks, no two are exactly alike and what bank number one might view as necessary for know your customer or AML or OFAC bank number two might have 75% of those same things plus like two or three others. And so it just, it creates a little bit of um, uh, friction in, in the chain there as, as we're sort of onboarding suppliers and, and working through the different requirements of different banks and sort of having a much more standardized 
approach to this is what is needed to meet all of the requirements would would certainly help to um, speed up the process and, and open it up even faster. Well, hopefully we see uh, prime revenue making a bid for a JP Morgan uh, <laughs> in a few years down the line. Fingers crossed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, with all the challenges, supply chain finance um, hopefully isn't one of them. I mean, we've seen ships block the Suez Canal. We've seen ships with luxury cars on fire. I mean, it seems like the 2020s are not going to be the the best decade. No one's going to look fondly back on the early 2020s uh, for sure. But it looks like you guys are doing a great job in making that easier for your customers, uh, removing one obstacle, like I mentioned, getting things uh, moved around the world. So keep up the good work. Well, thanks. Yeah, we're, we're certainly trying to do our part to, to help the economy and to help our customers grow and prosper. So thank you guys very much. Appreciate the time. That's Nathan Feather, the CFO at Prime Revenue. Please hit subscribe to keep up with the latest in fintech news. And thank you for listening.